Good morning. Uh, if you got your Bibles, please open it up to Revelation chapter 11. We're looking at verses 1 to 14. Revelation 11, verses 1 to 14. Uh, I'm Jimmy Fowler, uh, one of the pastors here, executive pastor, and it's my joy and privilege uh, to bring God's word this morning. So we've got 14 verses here. I'm not going to read it all at once. We're going to go ahead and read it as we go through. But if you're uh, visiting today or first time coming, uh, just give you an idea where we're at. We're in Revelation. And that's kind of a, you know, for a lot of churches that, that comes off a little weird because they say weird things. But uh, here we've been looking at, at the passage, just exegetically, working through it. Uh, some of the feedback I've been receiving from, from you uh, has been an appreciation for as Pastor Joe and I have been going through this, uh, kind of working through it slowly, but also kind of making the connections back to the Old Testament and showing, you know, uh, how crucial it is as you approach Scripture to be studying it diligently and carefully so that you can interpret it faithfully. And so uh, it's been our joy to do that. To kind of give you a bit of a recap on, on where we're at, uh, we've been going through the seven trumpets. And so the first four were about natural disasters. Pastor Joe was talking about you got hail and fire, burning mountain, falling star, sun, moon, star struck from the sky. And so these were these natural disasters as these trumpets are, are, are being uh, Blown, And so the last two, though, fifth and sixth, were demonic torment and triumph, the spiritual attack upon the church. And so the purpose of the trumpets, though, was to preview the, or this warning of God's judgment against the wicked and the afflictions and judgment that some are going to receive. And so as you're going through that passage, as you're reading that, it's really heavy and it's really weighty. And it can be quite despairing and discouraging. And so then we have this interlude. We have this interlude, this pause in the text to encourage the church and to call us to action. And Pastor Joe was hitting on that last week as he was talking about how the ministry of the word is both sweet and bitter to all who believe. We can rejoice as we hear the word proclaimed. We can rejoice in the salvation that we have. We can rejoice in the, the, the hope that we have in Christ but there is a bitterness to it because for those that are saved and those that we're able to rejoice in the hope that we have, we also, though, see this warning to non-believers in the judgment that is set before them. And so we have an expanding on this here of what the church's call to action is and what God calls us to do. You know, I, I really enjoy movies and I enjoy movies. My, my favorite movies are kind of mob movies. I don't know why it is. I, I, I kind of look forward to, to the guy killing the witness, right? There's always a witness. There's always someone that sees something, and he's going out of his way to take care of it. Because in his mind, if I take care of the messenger, no one will hear his message, and they can't indict me. Anyone watch 24? 24? No, no one ever watched 24? Okay, a few. Don't be embarrassed. Why are we embarrassed? This is a great show. It was fantastic. I'm going through it again. Season 3, episode 2 going to hit up tonight. But in that show, there's always that, that witness. There's always someone, and Jack's got to get him. Jack's got to get him, bring him to safety so that people can hear his message, and they can avert disaster. They can avert a plague, or they can avert some nuclear showdown. 
See, the messenger is important because of the message that they bring. And evil will always try to come against the messenger to silence the message. Evil will always push back so that the truth would not be told, so that light would not shine into the darkness. And our text today, we're going to look at the two witnesses in Revelation 11. We're going to be looking at the, the two witnesses and the message that they have and the purpose that they have within the world. Because one of the things I, I really want us to understand this morning is this, that when the church stops proclaiming God's word, the world stops hearing God's voice. Let me say that again. When the church stops proclaiming God's word, the world stops hearing God's voice. Please pray with me. Father, I, I praise you for the opportunity. I praise you for the opportunity to be able to share your word with your people. Lord, I, 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 this text has been convicting for me. And I believe it will be convicting for all of us. But Father, in the, in the midst of this text, I see your, your mercy and your grace. I see your patience. I see how you deal kindly with us and, and with others and with non-believers. But ultimately, Father, I see that, that you are a holy God, a righteous God, and that you are a faithful God that will complete the task that you have set before us. Father, I, I ask that you would open our, our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're looking at, at Revelation 11, verses 1 to 14, and we're going to break this passage down into three sections. We're going to be looking at the purpose of the church, and then we're going to be looking at the power of the church, and finally, the priority of the church. The purpose of the church, the power of the church, and then the priority of the church. So first, the purpose of the church. Look with me now, verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So first, let's stop here. We see that in this, in this passage, why is it that he's asking of giving a measuring rod like a staff? Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. What's the significance of that? Especially as we looked at the prior passages about the 144,000 or the great multitude. In Scripture, it talks about you can't count the number of, of followers, of descendants. They'll be too numerous, right? Like, like sands on the beach. How is it then he's supposed to measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers? And when we talk about temple, we know it's not a physical temple temple because Revelation also talks about there is no physical temple, but it's about God being in and among his people. It's the presence of God among the people of God, and there he dwells, and we dwell with him. And when we look at the altar, it's like, well, which altar? Because there's the altar of sacrifice and the altar of incense, where the prayers would be going up, that God would receive that, and, and, and it would be pleasing to him. Well, it can't be the altar of sacrifice, because there's no longer a need for that altar of sacrifice for one's sins to go back over and over again with a, with a lamb or with some sort of offering because Jesus himself gave himself once and for all. 
And in uh, Revelation 6, we see that there is an altar, though. And it's that altar of incense where the, the prayers are being received. So he's saying, measure this temple, measure this altar, measure the worshipers. You see, there's this setting apart that's happening here. Saying, measure these, because these are mine. These are part of my kingdom. These are my children. These are the ones that could call me Abba Father. These are the ones that, that I have redeemed. These are the ones that I have saved. Measure those within the temple. You've got the altar and the, uh, the worshipers. Those that are within here. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months or in Bible math, three and a half years. And so he says that. Measure here, but don't measure there. There's a clear distinction there's a dividing line in the sand. And what's scary to me is that even those right outside the temple, even those that are just outside and near, are not to be counted. Oftentimes I think to myself, and I wonder, I go through phases where I wonder, am I saved? Am I a true believer? I long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. But I still have to look at certain texts that say, well, did I prophesy in your name, O Lord? Didn't I work miracles in your name? Did I not work for you? Did I not proclaim you? And for him to say, away from me, I never knew you. You know, this is that, that why it's important for us to understand and what real faith is and saving faith is. And that there is a distinction here. And there are those that are within and those that are without. I mean, in the text here, in verse 2, it calls it the holy city. Right? We have the holy city, and then in verse 8, this great city, or Sodom and Egypt. And you got the holy city and the great city. I mean, Jesus talks about wheat and chaff. In Romans and throughout Scripture, we hear about true Israel and Gentile. We hear about the people of God and the people of the world, and we hear about saved and unsaved. Two groups of people. Those that are within the holy city and those that are outside. You see, the church is set apart. The church is to be distinct. The church is to be in the world, but not of the world. The church is to also have a mission, though. We're not just, to, we're not just called to be set apart, but we're called to be on, on mission. I mean, look at verses 3 and 4 here. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, or three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth, for these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So who are the two witnesses? I mean, if you look back at certain bad theology, you know, they, they, they might look and say, okay, maybe that's Elijah and Moses. I mean, I think the Left Behind series tried to hide the names and call them Eli and Moshe or something like that. And they would say, okay, because one signified the law and one signified the prophet, the prophets. Another interpretation is, okay, maybe it's Elijah and it's Enoch because neither of them tasted death. If you remember back, neither of them had tasted death. They were swooped up into glory. Others look and say, well, maybe this is Peter and Paul. But as I look at this text and, and within the context here, I would like to position it and, and some of the, the commentators and scholars that I trust 
look at it and say, well, these two witnesses signify the universal church. All those in the past, present, and future. Those living now and who have lived before. The church of Christ, the true believers of Christ, the elect of Christ. So then why two, though? Well, think of it. Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. In Matthew or Mark 6, 7. In Acts 3, 1, the apostles are sent out two by two. In Deuteronomy 17, 6, what does it tell us? That the validity of a witness's testimony is only counted upon two witnesses, not one. And so symbolically, we have these two witnesses that represent the church, that represent you, that represent me. And so then what, what is this 1,260 days I mean, does that mean, you know, is there going to be a thousand-year reign and there's all these, these numbers? Do these years matter and all? Well, it's just symbolic in talking about in this age. I mean, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so now we have this, we're, as the church, from commission, from the great commission to consummation, when the Lord returns, the church has been set apart with a purpose. The church has been set apart to witness to a lost world. The church has been set apart to proclaim the gospel of God. The church has been set apart to reach out to those who don't know him, to share the good news with them, to, to plead for them, to pray for them, to want, to want them to know their God. Because as a church, what we can testify is we know what God has done in our lives. We've seen what God has done in our lives, and yet, and we know the hope that we have when the Lord returns. But we also know the devastation that is before them when the Lord returns. And so from the Great Commission to when Jesus returns, we are, we're called to witness as a church, as a people of God, to witness to a lost world. And the posture there, they says that they're in sackcloth. They're preaching repentance. They're in humility. I mean, Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So then what's our message? Our message is Jesus. That's the message of the church. And we've talked about that here a, a, a few occasions. You know, the mission of the church is not social justice. That's not. The mission of the church is to make disciples. The mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel. Now, those within the church... Believers within the church should care about justice. Believers within the church should care about righting wrong systemic injustices. We should care about that because we have a holy God that is holy. We have a, a just God that hates injustice. We serve a righteous God that hates unrighteousness. And what God hates, we hate. And so while the mission of the church is not to go to do that, the people of God... Some are called to, to practice in that way. Often we use that, we say, well, because as a people, because the church of God is, is called to only proclaim Jesus, then there, we don't need to say anything about justice. No, it's, it's not true. 
God has called some of you to do that work, and I praise God for that. I praise God for that. But the church is called to witness and to proclaim him and the salvation that we have in him, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, 1 Corinthians 1.23, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Hear that. Those outside think we're foolish. Those outside think they have it all together. Those outside believe what we're looking at is, is antiquated and wrong and we're misguided. That we don't know any better. That we're uneducated. But what we have here, what we know, is that when we, but we continue to preach because as we preach, God calls those that are his I mean, think about that for a moment. Think about that, that how humbling is that to know that God uses you. God uses you to proclaim his word. God uses you to proclaim his gospel to a lost world. God invites you, as Henry Blackaby talks about it, to come on mission with him, to come join the work that he's doing. That as you proclaim that, Others, it's not because you're, you, can, you can articulate it well. It's not because you're smarter. It's not because you have some great antidotes. It's not because you have some wonderful metaphors or somehow you're a slick, charismatic individual that dresses well and, and can present things in a logical manner. No, it's only by the Spirit of God. And as you proclaim the Word of God, the Spirit of God works in the hearts of sinful man and turn them to himself. That's what you're invited to is to trust and believe that as you proclaim, the Spirit will work. It's the easiest job. You open your mouth, the Spirit works. But that's what we're called to. But we preach Christ crucified. And for some, it's a stumbling block. But for us, we know it's our hope. And it's their hope. Revelation 11, 5 to 6. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as as they desire. So not only then do we have this call, our purpose to proclaim God's word, to proclaim the gospel, but then we have this, he gives us this power, right? His presence and he's with us, but ultimately it's his word because as we're proclaiming the gospel, as we're pro proclaiming God's word, we're, we're saying what God has said, we're ambassadors. I mean, I think of when you look back in scripture, you, you see you got God, he's going to speak to Moses, right? He's going to tell Moses these things. And then Moses is going to tell Aaron and Aaron's going to tell the people. Is this, this mouthpiece, it's so are we because we have this powerful message. What does it mean by this fire? Like, are we going to, if someone comes against us, we're going to harm them? No, because scripture talks about you don't repay evil with evil. So it's not this sense that as we, as we speak to them and someone comes against us, we're just going to burn them with fire, But that this message, this word is a powerful message. That the word of God does its work. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I mean, look at that. As the word of God is being proclaimed and someone's hearing and the spirit is working there, they hear this word. It's a sharp word. It's a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division. You can't hide. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I mean, this is what makes this powerful, what makes this fire is the word of God itself. And that's why we study this, we pray through this, we're devoted, and we proclaim it through the word of God so that people could hear and receive and be saved. That's why we preach the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And for those that ridicule us and come against us, for those that push back against, all they're doing is showing their judgment because as they hear this word being proclaimed and they're rejecting it and they're pushing back against it, all they're doing is heaping judgment upon themselves. The word of God is powerful. It goes deep and you can't ignore it. And you can't proclaim the gospel without it. But see, the power of the church is, is the, the God's word, but then also that God answers. And that God answers prayer. I mean, verse 6 here in Revelation 11. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days they're prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, I'm glad I can't read that literally. I'm glad I can't look at that because there's a number of Christians that, and I know myself, sometimes we get amped up, we get triggered, and we go on tilt, and we get angry, and we take, try to take justice into our own hands and go for retribution. But figuratively, as we're reading this, we see that God answers prayers that he answers the prayers. And in this text, obviously it's a reminder of, of Elijah and the weather and, and Moses and Aaron turning uh, uh, water into blood. But the prayers of a righteous man, James talks about this in 5.16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, that righteous person is not, it's not that they do well, it's not that they do good works, it's not that they've cleaned themselves up, but they've been declared righteous by God. So this gift that we have, that's this declaration because of our union with Christ, that we are righteous before him. He hears our prayers. Beloved, hear that. He hears your prayers. Think about that for a moment. It's not just that he heard our collective prayer. He hears your prayer individually, Molly. He hears them. He hears your prayers, Josh. Think about this as you're going through it. I, I'm blown away by that. I'm blown away that who am I? Who am I to even pray to God, to beseech God, to ask God? And yet he hears my prayers. And according to his will, he answers those prayers. How grand is that? I don't know you, but I'm blown away by that power. I'm blown away the fact that he answers like that. 
Because I've been in times, and I know you have too, where you've had to cry out to God. Where you've known there's only one way for this to get through. There's only one way to come to a resolution. And it's only if God answers. I have been on my knees crying to God, Lord, fix my marriage. How many of you have been in that same position? Father, hear my prayer. Heal my loved one. Father, I need a job. How many of you have cried out to God and God has answered those prayers? That's an act of grace and mercy because our God hears those prayers. I mean, he talks about this faith of a righteous person has great power. Jesus says in Matthew 17, 20, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. We can move mountains with our prayer, figuratively. There's been, out, there's been times in my life where I've looked back, and even actually in the midst of it, known, if God didn't move, I am doomed. You know, I, Michelle and I, Michelle's Canadian, and, and uh, I lived in Canada, I was serving, I was working with Young Life, but because of immigration, I couldn't get paid. They wouldn't give me any paperwork. So I had to sit there and I had to volunteer and, and God was good to us. God was so good to us early on in our marriage that people would show up. Our door was always unlocked. They'd leave groceries in our, uh, in our kitchen. They'd leave cash on the counter for bills. The community embraced us and they loved us. And I remember one day we had the opportunity where I could finally go to the border and try to get this visa. And we're praying and we're praying because I've been denied three times going through the system for years. And we're praying, the church is praying, the community's praying. And one morning, Michelle and I got in the car early, jumped in, got in the fair, and we're praying because there's only two options here. Either God answers and I'm coming back with her, or I'm heading to Seattle and I'm, I'm locked out of Canada. And we go and we're praying with people in our church just over and over again. And people are sending text messages. And, and one of the things about custom agents there and immigration agents, they move them around the border. They don't keep them in the same, the same spot. They move them all across. So you never know where you're going to be at which crossing. And so we chose a crossing. We went to it. We go through. We're coming in. We're praying. And I see at the line, at the till, there's an individual. I'm like, this guy does not look happy. He does not want to be here. Lord, I don't want that man. <laughs> and I'm getting closer and closer. And then it's my turn. And a young lady taps him on the shoulder and he moves. She sits down. And we go through it. Where are you from? What are you trying to do? Oh, what church? She goes, that's very nice. Stamps it, gets up, and says, please tell Penny, my mother-in-law, hello, and walks away. And I had my documentation so I can work and live in Canada and be with my family. I say that only because if God had not intervened, I wouldn't have been able to come back in. And it was through prayer, as the church was praying, as the community was praying. But I know a number of you that have, been that have been crying out to God, Lord, hear my prayer. I'm telling you, he hears them. And he answers them according to his will. Because when the church stops proclaiming God's word, the world stops hearing God's voice. So he looked at the purpose of the church, the power of the church, and finally, the priority of the church. Revelation 11 7 to 14 says this. And when they, the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them 
and kill them. And their dead bodies will line the street in the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. When they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there's a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. What I'd like to, for us to see here as we're looking at this, you see that the world is coming against. You see that the world is, is coming against the church. And it disrespects the church. It does not, does not honor God's church. It rejoices when it seemingly feels like the church fails. But then they're terrified. The world is terrified when judgment comes. See, when the church is gone, there is no longer a witness on earth. When the church is done, there is no longer an opportunity. That's why what we do now is important. Because from the Great Commission to when Jesus returns, we have this time to proclaim God's word, to proclaim the gospel to a lost world. Because once he comes back, it's a wrap and we're done. And they're done. And that means those that we know, our loved ones, our colleagues, our friends, our families, our neighbors who do not know and are left in their sin, they will be dead in their sin and heading to, for their judgment. That's why the church is really important. We have been given this mandate. We have been given this command to proclaim the gospel. And during this time, this three and a half years, or symbolically just this age, this, this time span, from commission to consummation, God, in his divine forbearance, he should come at any time. When we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, what we're praying is, Lord, bring your judgment. Bring real justice. When we're asking for him to come, listen, he should come at any time and should judge all of us. And yet for some of us, we are saved only by his grace and mercy. And it's a grace and mercy that he has not returned because there's so many of our loved ones who do not know him that are lost, that are dead in their sin. And so we have this time now to proclaim the gospel to them. This should urgently, within us, we should be wanting to proclaim the gospel urgently to a lost world. I mean, uh, Spurgeon says this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Hear that. Hear that sense of urgency. If they're going to be damned, at least let them have to jump over us. We should be doing everything we can. Taking every opportunity, every moment to share the gospel, to spread the gospel, to share the hope that we have, not just holding on to it. 
The church is not a social club for us just to gather together, though we build lifelong relationships. The church is just not here as an institution, but we're here on mission to a lost world. We're here to invade a dark world with the light of Christ. That's our job and our mission. And what we've been given the task is to proclaim him relentlessly, unashamedly, proclaiming him. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one say, let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. This is super convicting for me. How many opportunities have I squandered with loved ones and with colleagues and with friends and not sharing the gospel with them and never seeing them again? How many opportunities have you squandered afraid or ashamed or think, I don't want to make that relationship weird? How many times have we squandered the opportunities that God has given us to spread the gospel? Let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. How often are we praying for the lost? If the prayers, if we've been given this power through prayer, that we can move mountains according to his will, how often are we praying for our loved ones who don't know him? I confess, I have not. And by the look in your eyes, I see you as well. We should be urgently proclaiming this gospel to a lost world. The local church is important. The local church is vital. Not only to our mission, but to ourselves. Because, see, church is not, the local assembly is not optional, but we treat it like it's optional. Sometimes we treat it like we can come and go as we please and we'll show up when it's convenient for us. Or getting involved in ministries. I'm going to use Journey Kids as an example of what we're talking about here. You know, in Journey Kids, we've been inviting you to join in on this. We're inviting you to be a part of it. And it's not because the elders just want to throw bodies into that ministry. No. Hear me say that again. We're not interested in just throwing bodies into the ministry. We care vitally about Journey Kids because it's an opportunity for us to proclaim the gospel to your children. My children need to hear the gospel and so do yours. And we will not let a week go by where we don't proclaim the gospel to our kids. That's why we invite you there, not to fill a space, but to proclaim the gospel to our kids so that they may know him, so that they may trust him, that they may love him. This is gospel work. When we invite you into Journey Kids or we invite you into Sojourn Youth or we invite you to come to men's ministry or, or women's ministry where we invite you to be a part of CGs and DGs. It's not just because we're trying to have this, this big, big, robust program. No, we don't care about the program. But we care about the priority, the mission of that program that it leads to what we're called to do. Make disciples as disciples. Every single ministry, every single aspect of our church needs to be geared towards that. That's why Journey Kids is important. That's why we push to get it up and running as quick as possible. When we invite you to tithe, it's not because we want a big grand building. You've seen our building. We don't put a lot of money into that. But we take the tithe and offering because it furthers the gospel work it furthers gospel work in the, the Fox Valley and beyond where we partner with other ministries in, in Japan or, or with Dave DeHaan and Word Partners or with Dan Alcantara 
over in Europe where we work with these individuals because they're proclaiming the gospel. That's what this is all about. We're, we're not just looking to, to put money in the bank account because it's all part of the gospel work. And that's why we invite you to be a member, to covenant with us in this, to join in the work, to stand with us as together we proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people. That's our mission. That's what we're called to. When the church stops proclaiming God's word, the world stops hearing God's voice. I've had to ask myself a few questions this past week as I was studying this. I had to ask, well, Jimmy, are you on mission? Have you been? No. In what areas have, have you held back? Why have you held back? Why have you not taken the opportunities that God has given you? What is stopping you from being on mission? Because sometimes we need to deal with the excuses that we make for ourselves. What is stopping us from being on mission? What's stopping you from proclaiming to your children, your neighbors, your colleagues? Brothers and sisters, the Lord has given us a mission. He's given us a job to proclaim him, to proclaim Jesus Christ crucified, that it's only through his life and death, his death on the cross, that we can be saved. We have no other hope but by his blood. And I pray that if you hear this morning, I want you to hear this. The Lord is coming, and he will come. And he invites you to know him, to be with him, to put your faith and your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word and I thank you for your patience. Just your grace and mercy in waiting as we accomplish this task. Your divine forbearance, your patience as, as you lovingly, because you want... The, you're waiting for your people. Father, I praise you for that and I thank you. And Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for, for when we've been off mission. Forgive us for, for when we have lost, when we've had opportunities presented in front of us and we haven't taken those opportunities. Father, I pray that we would see the, the purpose of the church, the power of the church, and that we would prioritize the church the local assembly, God's people as we gather together to proclaim together, to grow together, to learn together. We ask this all in your name. Amen.